Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio, where each week we talk to a musician, artist, author, or other creative Mississippian working in the arts across the state. I'm your host, Melody Moody Thordis, Director of Grants at the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today I'm speaking with author Jimmy Conjolis. So, um, Jimmy, I know that you uh, grew up in Jackson. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about your most recent book. You're a musician, you're an author, but, um, before we kind of get into that, just tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up here. Um, well, I guess what my friends and I always say about growing up in Jackson is that you had to very quickly learn how to make your own fun, Mm. um, which is a skill that has come in handy in, I think, every aspect of my life, you know, because, there's so many beautiful and amazing things here, but it's not like, you know, there's a thousand things for a 15-year-old to to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we spent a lot of times making our own things, whether it was making music, telling stories. Um, you know, God, I think we got so bored one day watching the Super Bowl. This was before we could drive that we went, a friend of ours um, had a very, very steep driveway and a spare tire. And we just rolled the tire down the driveway and then tried to block it with our bodies. You know, it's just, it, it was always stupid, but it was always fun. So, Well, I grew up in the mountains um, in Appalachia, and um, you would not believe how many tires were rolling down yeah. hills. Um, yeah. Whether yeah. meant to or not, they just <laughs> would come down that incline. So I can relate in that way. Yeah. Oh, so tell me about, like... Uh, I'm interested in knowing about, like, your early art experiences. So when did you start playing guitar? I started playing guitar. This is going to be the most cliched story ever. But um, I really started playing guitar because I think when I was 10 years old, I saw, I stayed up late one night watching TV when I wasn't supposed to, and I saw the music video for Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not know that Kurt Cobain was already dead. I thought this was like a brand new thing. And immediately I called my best friend, Lynn Clark, and I was like, we got to start a band now. Um, And then I I talked my parents into buying me. They would only buy me an acoustic guitar, but it was a little Alvarez acoustic guitar. And I had to prove to them that I really cared. So I immediately learned every Nirvana song I could, Um, which, you know, again, I was I was about five years too late, but <laughs> that's um, kind of a tendency in my life. But, uh, you know, and then um, Lynn got drums, and we just started playing music together. Okay. Um, and then do you play any other instruments, or is guitar kind of your primary? Um, guitar and bass. I tried to play piano, but I have tiny fingers, and I wasn't. I just wasn't good at it. So, you know. <laughs> I can relate on, on that one as well. What about writing? When did you kind of, I guess, get into that? Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, my parents recently, we were digging, I do a lot of school visits and sometimes the kids like when you give them, uh, like an example of a thing you wrote when you were a kid, it's like they, everybody laughs. It's kind of encouraging. Um, so I found a, a book of short stories I wrote when I was seven 
wrote and illustrated, and they're all scary stories, mm. and they are incredibly violent. <laughs> wow. So I was like, I was reading them, and I was really disturbed, but uh, I was like, Mom, Dad, were you worried about me? And they were like, yeah, I mean, not really, kind of. But, you know, it just, it's always been something that I, I've enjoyed, and I guess it, it's always been sort of filtered around either, like, fairy tales or scary stories. I don't know why. But, um, well, and I'm sure now your parents, I mean, you're, it's it's woven into the themes, you know, that we'll talk about a little later in your writing now. Yeah. Uh, that seems like it's kind of echoed from those early writings. Yeah. Well, it was, there were stories that was always like, you know, a kid, you know, is mad at his parents and then he finds a weird ruby outside for some reason. And then a skeleton comes out of his closet and kills him. And you're like, <laughs> I don't know what the moral to that story was. <laughs> right, right. It is like a, a bunch of plot mechanics that I didn't quite have figured out, but, um. Right. Yeah. Maybe you had the pieces and the parts and you were trying to say something. but Yeah, I think I was just, I was scared all the time as a kid. And mm-hmm. I was like super obsessed with scary stories. But I'm still like that. Everything still scares me to this day. I, I, but for some reason, I, I keep wanting to be scared. So. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you think, and we'll talk more about this later, but do you think that maybe writing about kind of scary stories is therapeutic in some way? I think so. But it's all, yeah, it definitely is. But, you know, um, it, it's also like a framework around which I can talk about things that I care about. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's always at the bottom of whatever you're afraid of is something, you know, very important to you and something you care about. Um, and the sort of framework of a scary story with the, its very beginning, middle and end, you know, kind of trajectory is very helpful for me in that way. But um, also, as as I've gotten older, I found out that I, I, I love roller coasters even more than I did when I was a kid. Like, I'm still like a big roller coaster guy. So uh-huh. I don't know. There's just something about that feeling of of whatever rush that is that kind of just blanks everything out. And uh-huh. I don't know. So I guess it's a little bit of both. It's kind of like an exhilaration thing and also a way to go deep inside yourself. Um, if I can keep rambling <laughs> on... Uh, the great horror director, Stuart Gordon, who did like Reanimator, said that uh, at the heart of every scary movie or every scary story is an impossible dream. Um, and I'm not 100% sure what he meant by that, but I like it. And so I, I think there's, there's a bit of truth there. Well, for those just joining us, I'm Melody Moody Thordis with the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today on the Arts Hour, I'm talking with author Jimmy Conjolis. So, Jimmy, we talked a little bit about you um, starting a band with your friends. So, um, as a, uh, uh, I guess, lover of the arts from uh, the late 2000s um, in Jackson, I have to ask you about your time with the band Color Revolt. So, um, can you tell me a little bit about your experience with that band? Oh, sure. Um, You know, it was funny. My my friend, when I was talking about first getting into music and getting a guitar, my buddy Lynn who played drums, was the drummer of Color Revolt. We uh, were first a band called Fox, F-O-X-X-E, making fun of Lynn's stepdad. And then that became Fletcher, which then became Color Revolt. At the same time, we, you know, it, it was weirdly a perfect place to grow up and play music, Jackson was, because um, there was, you know, we had the church venues, we had the university pub, we had Cheney Nichols doing Esperanza Plantation, and um, just a ton of people in bands and a ton of high school mm-hmm. kids in bands with places to play. So, like, you know, Dent, Dent May and Patrick Addison, Patrick, who would later be in Color Revolt, were in a pop-punk band called um, Your Name Here, which then became the Rockwells, and now Dent is, you know, an extremely successful musician in his own right. Um, 
But uh, Color Revolt just came about um, when Lynn and I met this guy, Jess Koppenbarger, and Driver's Ed. And uh, we started playing music together, and it was just a perfect fit. And Jess, who also went on to 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 do his own thing, uh, El Obo, right, is yep, the name of yep. does, does he still play it? He does. I think Obo? he's got a record coming out next year. Oh, fantastic. So. fantastic. And, you know, it was just a perfect way to tour the country. You know, we were we wanted to see what America was like. Mm. And, um, you know, you could book, we figured out you could book shows on MySpace back then. And, you know, just by the time we were 17, we were just able to travel around and to see places and to sleep on couches and just see the world and as cheaply as possible, or at least see America as cheaply as possible. Um, it was so much fun. It's definitely interesting to think back about how bands kind of got themselves known back then. You talk about MySpace. I saw something online the other day um, about a, a young child telling their parent, um, when you go to Facebook, wouldn't it be great? if you could play your band's music right there. Yeah. And they said, let me tell you about something called MySpace. <laughs> That's actually how it used to work um, yep. prior, yep. prior to Facebook. Um, so um, tell me about then, so so your time with Color Revolt, I know, and then you went to uh, study creative writing at Ole Miss, right? So, yes. So um, tell me a little bit about your time in Oxford and um, your studies there. Uh, my first go-around was in undergrad, um, and it was so fun. Uh, you know, it, we were playing Color Revolt shows, so we would, you know, like, book a show. Everybody would make sure they didn't have Friday classes. We would book a show, like, in New York, leave Thursday night, get back Monday morning at 8 a.m. right before classes. So <laughs> just driving there and back. You know, it was exhausting, but it was really fun. Um, you know, there were just so many writers and supportive people in Oxford and so many musicians. We would follow Barry Hanna around you know, from like a 20-foot distance because everybody was afraid to talk to him. And, you know, just, it was amazing. Uh, Oxford felt like such a free place to be an artist in a way that, um, um, you know, in a lot of ways it was similar to Jackson that if you created something, if you were making music or books or whatever, there were so few of us that you all became friends mm -hmm. and um, stuck together. And that was just a very beautiful thing. Yeah, and a really special time, I think. I mean, I can I, I can remember that time in Jackson, at least. Um, I can't speak to, to Oxford, but but I try to describe it now to people who have just moved here. And it's like there is that element, I think, still in a place like Jackson, but then it, it had a DIY feel to it, yeah. um, it seems, particularly when it comes to music and events. And we just kind of did it ourselves and with oh, our friends. Absolutely. It was so much fun. And, you know, even like... We, you, they were like indie rock shows and then there were, you know, metal shows at churches that mm -hmm. were completely kid run, like completely. It would be, you know, for some reason they would let us have a show for 300 people and, you know, Horizon Community Church and mm -hmm. somebody would get kicked in a mosh pit and we would all be scrambling to try to get blood out of the carpet, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> right. And, you know, kids would be taking the door. It was just so fun. And um, there were so many places to play and so many bands and mm -hmm. people were just starting bands to start bands. Um, I, it was such an, uh, an electric atmosphere and, you know, we all, for whatever reason, thought we could just do it. And it mm -hmm. turns out we could just do it. That's um, right. I, I hope that people are still like that in a way. You know? I hope so too. I, I, I hope they are. I don't, I couldn't speak to that, but, um, but yeah, there's a part of me that hopes that it's, it's still that mentality. I used to tell people, 
um, Mississippi is so wonderful because you can start anything you want, whether mm-hmm. it's a business or a nonprofit or a band or a journal, an art and literary journal, or, or any you know any kind of creative endeavor. And at least then, it really felt like you could start whatever you want, and the community would kind of come behind you. Absolutely, and and the best part was it didn't matter if it wasn't good at first. Mm-hmm. You know, there was nothing to lose. So, and eventually, it would get good. Mm-hmm. You could start as bad as you wanted, but and figure it out as you went along. I loved that, and you know that goes back to having you know making your own fun. That's kind right. of just being like, well, I don't know how to do this, but if I do it enough, eventually I might be good. I think that's kind of, if you think about it, really what it means to be an artist. I mean, you have to start yeah. at some point, and then you're practicing, you're learning, and you don't know what you're doing at first, right? But you continue to learn and continue to grow. Absolutely, and your friends are there with you the whole time, even when you're bad. You know, <laughs> like, all right, those early Color Revolt shows were wretched, but people still came, you know? Right. And that was, that. you know, that was what, what mattered. We just wanted to, to hang out with our friends. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different Mississippians. Today, I'm talking to author Jimmy Kajolis. So, Jimmy, before the break, we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, um, our time in the music scene in Jackson and, and your work just as an artist. And I want to know kind of from you, who are some of the artists that you look up to or who have inspired you, whether music or writing, um, in your work? Wow. Um, there's so much to talk about there. (laughs) I'm going to leave so many people out. Um, growing up, you know, it, well, I'm going to I'm just going to talk about right now if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Like the people that inspire me the most right now are some friends that I met in Oxford, Mississippi in grad school. Two of them are my teachers, but uh um the writer Megan Abbott, who's a unbelievably great crime writer, um Jack Pendarvis, who is a short story writer and a novelist who also writes for shows like Adventure Time and for Cartoon Network and things like that and uh um, the writer William Boyle, who is actually from uh, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. but he moved to Mississippi to go to the MFA program. Um, and then there are others that I can talk about, like Hayes Atkins and Michael Bible and Jesmyn Ward and all of these writers that I love so much. But um, really hanging out with Megan and Jack and um, Bill Boyle taught me more about books and music and movies than anything else because they're all way smarter than me, mm. first off. So they would just be talking about all these things that I'd never heard of, and I would be, like, under the table, like, taking notes on my phone. Just, they would go through hundreds of movies. And, you know, they're always the most curious people I've ever known. You know, Bill will never stop learning and reading and growing, and he'll never, ever stop watching everything he can. And his books are so great and so wonderful, and they're all such fans of of um what's happening in the world and they're so connected to it um 
And it, it's that mindset that I hold so dear just to be forever a fan and forever curious. Um, as far as music, gosh, I could talk forever. <laughs> I mean, there's so much, you know, um, we talked earlier about Dent May. Um, you know, when I was, <laughs> we were all, ho- all of Color Revolt and Dent and a bunch of people that now work at Fat Possum Records were all houseboys at the Tri-Delta house at Ole Miss because we were broke and needed food. And you like serve food and everyone ignores you, but it really brought us <laughs> close together. Um, and uh, Dent would, I didn't know anything about electronic music and Dent would just start bringing me mix CDs of just stuff to listen to. And, you know, he's always been like a searcher in that way. He always knew all of the best music and all of the coolest stuff. And um, I was always, you know, five years behind at least. <laughs> and then, you know, people were just so generous with their time with showing me um how much great art is out there and how you'll never get to the bottom of it, um, which is just the best thing in the world to me. Yeah. I'm so happy to know that I will never get to the bottom of it. Wow, that's a that's a, actually a beautiful thought. So I'm curious, when you sit down to write, um, is there anything that, that maybe it's from some of those conversations you had with some of the people that inspire you, maybe it's from other things you've read or experiences um, in general that you've had, but is there anything that kind of runs through your mind? I don't want to call it a mantra, right? But something that maybe you like really think about or remind yourself about when you really kind of put on that hat and, and start writing. Yeah. Yes. Actually, this might sound completely counterintuitive, but it's something that my teacher and friend Jack Pendarvis would always say to us. Um, who cares? Mm. You would just say it doesn't matter. Like there's no pressure. It's just a book. Mm. Nobody cares. And that sounds defeatist, but it's actually the most freeing thing in the world because if nobody cares, then you can do whatever you want. So I, I'll, sometimes when I get nervous or scared, I'll just say it doesn't matter. You know, this is play. Mm. And then, you know, I'll still put my whole heart into it. But um, it's that freedom that comes from it just, you know, this is, this is just your best, just do it. And, um, also I get really nervous. I'm an incredibly anxious person. Um, and so (laughs) I I found that if I put in headphones and listen to extremely loud sludgy music, it really helps like that band earth Mm -hmm. or like electric wizard, just whatever is just like, just that kind of sound will block out all of the terrible voices in my head telling me I can't do it. And then I'm just free to write. I, so. I think I think that's amazing. So, so you you will typically then listen to headphones. That's your a typical process for you then to put Always. on this loud music. Always. Yeah, right. and some. I mean, I know I'm going really well when the music stops and I don't notice. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is sometimes I'll write in public places and I will realize that I'm talking to myself, mm-hmm. but I will only realize it after I've been talking to myself for like an hour. <laughs> I'm just narrating and everyone is staring at me. And But, you know, um, yeah, music really helps. It helps to quiet whatever negative thoughts you might have. It helps to set the mood a little bit. And, um, you know, because some, some mornings you don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter that you don't feel like it. You just have to do it anyway. I've actually never met anyone else other than myself who listens to really loud music <laughs> when trying to concentrate. Do I do. Whenever I um, would be writing, a, like, a grant proposal mm-hmm. or a final paper, something that kind of took all of my concentration, the louder the music would be and then honestly for me the bigger the headphones needed to be yep. i found that i wanted bigger and bigger headphones to 
I don't know. I felt like even the squeezing mm-hmm. of the headphones helped me concentrate. Oh, this is so validating. Yes, yes. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> like, what, what would you listen to? Um, well, honestly, I listen to a lot of 90s R&B. Awesome. Um, and I think that's so random, but I think it's because um, they say that sometimes the music that you experienced in kind of like middle school to uh, high school mm-hmm. or so kind of really sticks with you. It's kind of like, I don't want to call it your soul music, but yeah. kind of right hits you in a in a different way. Totally. Um, and for me, that is the music that I listen to during that time period in my life. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and so I don't get caught up in the words. I, I, I kind of get caught up more in the beat and, mm-hmm. you know, it's familiar. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to share that with you just because I've, I've, yeah, I've never no. met anyone else that does that. I love that so much. I remember one time when I was in grad school writing in the Ole Miss library and I had my headphones on and I was just typing. I was in like the mezzanine where nobody ever is. And I was just going to town and finally I like finished and took my headphones off. <laughs> I realized the tornado sirens were going <laughs> off and I walked out and everybody was huddled in the thing and I just missed it completely. Because I was listening to music really loud and typing. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that, wow, that's phenomenal. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the books that you've been writing. Now, okay. um, we'll talk more about your more recent book, which is the only one that I've had the pleasure to read. But um, if you could tell our audience um, and me a little bit about your past books. So you have... Five books, published books total, is that right? Four. And Four. Then one supposedly coming next year. So okay, we'll so see. okay, so yeah. so one coming next year. So uh Goldaline, was that the first one? That was my first one. So uh, maybe let's talk a little bit about each one. You wanna tell our audience about uh, Goldaline? Sure. Uh it's a middle grade book, which means it's like I guess for ages like what do they say, ten to like thirteen or maybe okay. nine I I'm not I should know that, but I don't. <laughs> um that's a, a book about um, a young girl who, uh, after her mother is is killed by this maniacal preacher, as burned as a witch, she goes on. Uh, she becomes a bandit and you know takes off through the woods. It's basically the plot of Night of the Hunter, but nobody has ever called me on that, <laughs> and I don't know why. Um, I really, but that was a fun book to write. I wrote it as my um, M- MFA thesis, and I actually wrote it for adults. And then my agent found it and was like. This is not for adults. This is for 10-year-olds. So I was totally into that. So so let me ask you about the young adult genre real quick. Okay. Um, what, what does, I mean, I know, I don't want to ask you how that classifies because you said you're not sure exactly the ages, but what did your agent maybe tell you about why your books would fit into that genre? I think a lot of it had to do with... Um, the voice, like uh, it's narrated by an 11-year-old girl, and mm-hmm. I stayed very, very, very close to her mindset the whole time. Like I never um, veered from her perception of what was happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was sort of the idea behind it was there were all these fantastical elements and a lot of fairy tale stuff, but um, it's all seen through her eyes. And there's a lot of stuff that she doesn't pick up on. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, maybe the adult readers will pick up on, but... uh Honestly. You know, I think it was mostly just I, I stayed so close to her perspective. And um, with the YA books are the same way. Uh, my second book was called The Good Demon, and it's um, narrated by a 16-year-old girl. And uh, who is um, it's the book starts, she's previously been demon-possessed, and she's been exercised of that demon. And then when the book starts, she's trying to get the demon back mm-hmm. because it was her best friend. Um, 
And that was just, you know, uh, sort of writing from that perspective and staying close to what the character would care about um, is sort of what put it in that age group, Mm -hmm. as far as I understand. You know, a lot of this stuff I've found because, you know, adults are the primary readers of YA books. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's like a dirty secret that nobody talks about. But so a lot of it has to do with like with marketing, you know, more than anything, because, you know, if you read a YA book, a good one, it will have as much content and as as much skill in writing as, as any, like, you know, literary fiction out there. One that comes to mind is The Hate You Give. Exactly. You know, she, Angie Thomas is, is kind of a, is an incredible writer and sort of, like, wrote this miraculous book that was so perfect for the time, but it's also so beautifully written. And it, it complete, you know, I stayed up all night finishing that one. <laughs> it was one you know, I was reading in the subway and missed my stop. You know, and it's a true page turner and a fantastic book. Her second one is is every bit as good. I kind of like it better on the come up. It's oh, it's it's a, a lot thornier in a way, but I, I love that book. Um, and yeah, and she's proof that those books are every bit as real as as any other book. And for all age, I mean, truly, for, really, yes. truly, for all ages. Absolutely. I remember reading it and thinking. Wow, I really hope that this this genre one opens this conversation up to younger people, but also doesn't stop older people from reading it. So I'm actually using that book as an example. Really glad to hear you say that adults are um, a big part of the readership for young adult Absol- novels as well. Absolutely, I like it too because I interrupted you. I'm so no, sorry. No, you're good. Gosh, but I uh, no, but um, it, you know, it's nice that everyone is reading the same books and is mm-hmm. kind of on the same page and having the same conversations. Uh, I really like that aspect of the genre. So let's talk about um, your third book, The Rambling. That one is about <laughs> how do I sum this one up? Okay, it's about a kid who runs away from his home to go visit his dad that he hasn't seen in years. Who um is a notorious sort of like, uh, there's this magical card game called Parsnet, and uh, he's kind of like gotten himself in too deep with a bunch of debts from playing this game, and then he gets kidnapped and taken to the swamp, and the kid goes after him to try to get his dad back. Okay, and that came out pretty recently as well? Yes, Um, that's a middle grade book, again, for like 10 to 13, I think, 9 to 13. Um, That came out in March of of this year. It's okay. been kind of a busy year for me. But um yeah, that was that was actually the most fun one to write. And why is that? I just put so much of the things I love in it. Mm-hmm. You know, um I, I had a little bit of a health scare right when I was starting to write it, so I just decided that this if this was going to be the last book I ever wrote, then I would just put everything that I like in it. So I, there's songs that I love, there's food that I love, there's all of this religious stuff that I love. There's all these cards that I love. Um, I, I had so much fun just making stuff. I worked in a, a million folk tales, um, references to song. You know, just I just crammed it with things I love. Well, that that just makes me think about its title and yeah. um, <laughs> the rambling and this idea of kind of putting all those things all together. Um, I want to talk briefly uh, before before our break about some of the the themes that emerge in your writing. You just mentioned some of them. Um, some of the ones that I noticed um, okay. were uh, place and religion, music. I talked about that, um, and then um, I I kind of asked around of, of some of your fans, and uh, they said that that they thought that 
the fact that you were from Mississippi was kind of evident in your writing. Um, is that purposeful? And do you find that to be true? I should I should start by oh. saying, and then is that purposeful? Well, first, I'm just so happy that you said I have fans. <laughs> that's that's really nice to hear. Um, yeah, it, I mean, you can't escape where you're from. And, you know, there were times when I was younger that I would always think, you know, wouldn't it be so much better to be from somewhere else, you know, to have this... Because we get pretty down on Mississippi sometimes, and for good reason. You know, the state has had so many problems and continues to have so many problems. But there's also so much beautiful and so much wonderful about it. And the, you know, I always tell people for every everything um, bad that you read, there's an equal number of people, or almost equal number of people, trying to fix it, trying to reverse it. And um, I think that comes through hopefully a lot in the books. Is just you know loving where you're from and acknowledging the problems with it, but also seeing the richness and the fullness and the beauty of it. And you know because Mississippi is unlike anywhere else, and um, at times it, it's such a paradise, and at times it's such a horror. You know, and, and I think that that sort of tension is is there in all of all of my books. Does that make sense? Did I? You no, know, it okay, absolutely okay. makes sense. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different creative Mississippians. Today I'm speaking with author Jimmy Conjolis. So, Jimmy, before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, your past books. So I want to talk about your most recent book. Um, So the title of this book is Minor Prophets. Um, And I just want to read real quickly a kind of brief synopsis. Okay. Um, and then if you can tell us a little bit more about it. So um, it says, after their mother's death, two siblings must navigate the strange world of the occult in this thrilling young adult mystery. Lee has always seen visions, cats that his mother promises are not there, a homeless man who he's convinced is out to get him, and three men who give him ominous warnings in the woods. His mother and his sister Murphy try to keep him grounded in the real world. But when his mother dies in a car accident and her horrible husband tries to adopt them, Lee and Murphy flee to their grandmother's ranch, which they've only heard about in stories. But is there a reason why their mother has never brought them there? And what horrid truths lurk behind Lee's haunting visions? Thrilling, twisty, and poignant minor prophets will keep readers guessing until the final page. So that is kind of what people... um, Hear about the book right before opening that, makes that it first page. Really good, so. <laughs> yeah. It it is very it is very good. Um, I you know the I kind of wrote down. I want to hear hear your your thoughts about the book and your process of writing it. But for me, I just kind of wrote down some key words that spoke to me while I was reading it, um, and I thought thought would kind of help our listeners who may be thinking about picking it up. So the words I wrote down were mystery, adventure, haunting, visions, suspense, power, corruption, love, and trust. Oh, wow. 
I like that. <laughs> um, and I and I thought that that kind of I mean there are more, but um, that that kind of I thought weaved kind of in and out. Um, so I guess you know, can you talk a little bit about what? I don't want to say what inspired you, but what made you put pen to paper on this particular book, and what and what were you kind of hoping to accomplish? And if and if nothing, that's okay as well, because you know your mantra we talked about earlier uh, could be evident. Yeah, well, I mean, for for all the books, I don't ever know what's going to happen with them. I really just sit down and start writing because I genu- I genuinely enjoy writing. Um, I know a lot of people don't, but. It's that's been something I've been blessed with is just it's more fun for me to write than not write, you know, so I'm always working on something. You know, there's a dozen half finished books and some finished books that I've just thrown away because they're bad. But um, I was sitting down and writing this and I realized that, um, you know, I've always been obsessed with the idea of prophets or people, you know, who see visions and things like that, generally because um, nobody likes it. You know, like a prophet in the Bible, it's like the worst thing to be. Mm. You get swallowed by a whale. You have to walk around naked. Nobody likes you. They tell you in a lion's den. You know, like it's the worst thing you can be as a prophet. Um, And you usually don't like what you have to tell people. Mm. You know, it's not, it's never like, yay, I'm a prophet. You know, and and I I was super, uh, for most of my life, I've been very obsessed with the the, um, poet and painter William Blake. And I found out um, reading one of his biographies that the first vision he ever had, he was like four years old, and he came running up to his mom and he said, Mom, Mom, I just saw God out by the apple tree or whatever. And his mom just grabbed him, pulled him over his her knee and spanked him and said, Don't ever blaspheme again. So <laughs> it just, I, I loved that idea that these things were terrifying, these things were bad, these things might or might not come true. Um, and... You know, going through, wow, this is a long and rambling answer. I'm so sorry. But, no, please. Um, I, I don't know. I just got so interested in all these people, you know, from Julian of, of Norwich to um, Nostradamus, you know, all these just throughout the ages, these people who have seen visions and then struggled to interpret them and how they had taken over their lives, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't hear a lot about the recipients of the miracles, just the fact that, you know, the miracles happened. So, one um, thing that I I really found compelling in this book was because the narrator is kind of a prophet or sees visions, however you want to kind of classify that, um, makes him an unreliable narrator, right? Very much so. Um, and so that, in a in its own way, I found kept you guessing. So the story in and of itself unfolds, I think, like a mystery, but then you continue to guess what is reality. But it seems like. Um, Perhaps your intention is that maybe the narrator himself ceases to know sometimes what is his own reality. Is that absolutely? And and you know the more powerful he kind of gets, the more hazy things get. You know, people don't do well with power. Mm-hmm. I have noticed in general, uh-huh. <laughs> very few people ever manage that well. Um, any kind of power, be it political or otherwise. So um, that's why we have so many mean billionaires. But. Uh, I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, I don't know. I, I think that I, I was sort of the space I was in writing that book was kind of a dark place. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, a lot of that came through, just my sort of like lack of understanding where I was in life and how I felt about a lot of things. And my own personal confusion was sort of the narrative engine of that book. 
um, for better or for worse, depending on who you ask, I suppose. Well, and I thought that, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to read the description of the book is that while I think that draws you in, I think that until you really read it, you 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 don't really get to see, excuse me, when you read it, you get to see the story of power in a way that I don't think is described, you know, is described before you kind of really get into um, the book itself. And then I think that I kind of wrote down, you know, love and trust as well, because when you're, when you're exploring that power and corruption that potentially comes with that power, um, it's seemed like it's, it's antithesis or it's, um, uh, 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 antidote would be kind of love and trust. Yeah, you got to have your people to set you straight. Um, that's something that's been true in my life. You know, I, I've always been able to count on at least a couple of friends in my family to, you know, grab me and shake me and remind me what, you know, what life's all about. And um, Lee has his sister Murphy, and um, who's just was a really fun character to write mm-hmm. because, you know, she's her own difficult character, but she she has a pretty good view of the world, and she loves her brother. And, um, you know, love, you know, that kind of love uh, can can save you. Yeah. I really believe that. Well, let's talk for a minute about character development. Um, so how do you go about the process of um, creating characters, not just in this book, maybe you can speak to any of your books, um, but what's that process like for you? Creating the character? Yeah. It usually starts with language. Um I'll kind of, uh, I used to say that you kind of fall into a voice, just a way of typing and talking, and then I kind of figure out the character backwards from that. Uh So I'll just find this fun way of talking on the page, and just, I'll be typing in this voice, and I'll be like, well, I wonder who would say that. Uh And then, you know, I would get clues from the kinds of words they use, what kind of person they are. So I really do it in a completely backwards, totally not efficient way. Well, it's always interesting to me to ask the process of that. Um, A a great friend of mine is an author, um, a fiction writer, and I remember many, many years ago, um, he would just scribble names on the wall, just like as he kind of thought of them for future books. And one day I said, what's this name? Like, who is this person? And he said, oh, I just made it up. And I said, no, that's my ninth grade boyfriend's name, like first and last name. And I said, you didn't make that up. I said, oh, I had no idea. So apparently some random story, you know, I had told, I've known mm-hmm. him for 20 years, had somehow um, come up for him and he figured he just made this name up. I love that. So that always, so it's ever since then, it's always interested me of like names and characters and kind of how these things come in your psyche and subconscious. Yeah. Well, names, names are tricky for me. I'm terrible at them, but um, I generally draw from people I miss or people I love or people I grew up with or people whose names I heard about. And then I kind Mm -hmm. of change them around a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes, you know, my friends will from, you know, grade school will call me out on it and be like, (laughs) I remember who that was. And you barely changed their name. Come on. But, you know, it's never a reflection of the character. It's just, you know, sometimes those names you love, some Names stick with you. Yes, absolutely. Um, What about, um, you know, we talked a little bit about your, some of the themes. Let's, um, let's delve into briefly uh, the theme of religion in your work. Um, Can you share with me, um, 
not necessarily your personal experience, but how you draw from your personal experience um, or thoughts about religion in the work that you do. Okay. Um, I will try to to keep this brief because I could probably talk about that for about a million hours. Um, I, you know, I was raised in a very, 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 well, we're in Mississippi. Everyone is raised and the church is such a central part of life, even if you don't you know, people who don't even believe in God still go to church three times a week. That's just sort of the way the society works. And um, church is, was such both, you know, an incredibly healing and beautiful and, you know, almost utopian thing for me growing up. Youth group was wonderful, but it also, um, with you know, without naming any names, left me with a lot of ideas that were confused that I had to sort of grow out of while still maintaining the things about the faith that I love so much. And I think that kind of conflict of, you know, what do I keep, what do I get rid of, what's true and what's false, um, why would these people that I trust lie to me? Mm. And um, even though I know they love me, you know, that tension is, is kind of there, And I think, in all of my books. Um, and I, I am still very much a religious person, and um, I, I still go to church in, in New York, where I live in Brooklyn, in a tiny little Episcopal church with, like, ten people um, that looks like it's about to cave in. But, you know, it, it's always—that tension is always there. Um, plus, it's a, an incredible framework to write a book from, because everything—I think I stole this from Flannery O'Connor, but everything is life or death. It's heaven and hell at all times. Mm -hmm. You know, it just immediately raises the stakes when there's religion involved. Um, and, you know, that's always going to be the way I see the world. And, and as this sort of mystical, supernatural place that's full of meaning and purpose. But, you know, sometimes hard to understand meaning and purpose. So my last, my last question about your process is, how do you deal with the pacing? I found myself, you know... Pay, like page after page, after, you know, just dying to get to the next page. How do you how do you deal with that? Oh gosh, I'm terrible at it. A lot of that is editing for me. Hmm. Like I will throw down this ungainly, horrible draft, and then go back through and try to like somebody. Um, I think it was my teacher Megan Abbott told me that uh, so you add suspense in editing. Hmm. So I'll go back through and delete things or change things up. Um, there's actually one like big plot twist that happens in the book that um, I had just put in there, like a very straightforward discovery. And um, my agent was like, you know, you can just like delete that line and then the book becomes suspenseful. And I was like, oh, oh that's so smart. That's it's, why you're my agent. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the, um, the concept in visual art of negative space. Yeah. You know, like taking away can sometimes strengthen the overall look of a piece and it can change everything yeah absolutely and i'm so bad at that and I, I need so much help with it it's something i'm slowly learning to do better and better but a lot of it is just yeah going through and deleting and deleting and deleting um yeah well um i want to thank you for coming on on the show um can you tell our audience where they can find your book or find more information about um your work or your previous books Please buy my books from local booksellers if you can, from, you know, Lemuria and from Square Books in Oxford, and help me out with some other... What's the one in the in the Delta? Oh, the uh, Turnrow? Turnrow, Turnrow. Uh -huh. um, and, yeah, any anywhere that you can, hopefully. And if they're not there, ask them to order them. But uh, 
and then that means maybe they'll stock it. But yeah, any way that you can support a local bookseller would be wonderful. And you have a website? Yes, uh, jimmycajolas.com, which we'll link to IndieBound, which will do the same thing. Well, thank you so much again, and thank you everyone for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. Be sure to tune in each week for the Mississippi Arts Hour, a co-production of MPB Radio and the Mississippi Arts Commission.